السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners last week i began the commentary of the hadith of sahih muslim in fact the very first hadith of sahih muslim <coughs> related by abdullah ibn umar radiyallahu anhuma who relates from his father who says that one day whilst we were seated with the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam a man appeared of intensely white clothes intensely dark hair there was no sign of journeying on him and nor did any of us recognize him until he came and sat down before the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and placed his knees against the knees of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then said oh muhammad tell me about islam so the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said islam is that you bear testimony that there is no god except allah and that muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is a messenger of allah and that you establish salah and you give zakah and that you fast the month of ramadan and you perform the pilgrimage of the house if you are able to find a path to it so the man said you've spoken the truth so umar radiyallahu anhu says that we marveled at him that he asks and then he ratifies he attests the an- to the answer he then said tell me about iman so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said iman is that to you believe in allah his angels his books his messengers in the final day and that you believe in qadr both it's good and it's bad the man said you've spoken the truth he then said tell me about ihsan so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said ihsan is that you worship allah as though you see him and if you do not see him then indeed he sees you So the man said tell me about the final hour so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said the one being questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself so 
So the man said, tell me about its sound. So the Prophet said that the maid should give birth to her the maid should give birth to her master and that you will see barefooted, unclothed, poor, shepherds and herders. competing with one another in the construction of buildings. Umar who says that the man then left. So I waited for a while, then the Prophet said to me, Oh Umar, do you know who that is? Do you know who the questioner is? So I said, Allah and his messenger know best. So the Prophet said, indeed, he is Jibreel who came to teach you your religion. This is the wording of Sahih Muslim. Otherwise, as I explained last week, the hadith can be expanded on with words uh, from a collection of uh, narrations from other books of hadith. And I already did that last week. I began commenting on the hadith and I reached the part where the Prophet told him what is Islam. And from other narrations we learn that some of the things that the Prophet ﷺ told him when he asked about Islam was, he said, what's Islam? Tell me about Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Islam is that you bear testimony that there is no God except Allah, and that Muhammad ﷺ is a messenger of Allah, that you establish salah, you give zakah, that you fast in the month of Ramadan, you perform the pilgrimage of the house, if you are able to find a path to it. And then from other narrations we learn that he also said, and that you do Umrah, and that you perform the ghusl after the major ritual impurity of Janabah, and that you complete the wudu. So Umar, so the questioner then said, <coughs> If I do all of these things, will I be a Muslim? So the Prophet said, Yes, you will be a Muslim if you do, if you do all, of the, all of these things. Then, this is where we ended. So to continue, Umar relates that the man then said, Sadaqt, you've spoken the truth. Umar says that, we marveled at him, we found this strange, that he questions the Prophet ﷺ, and then he ratifies the answer himself. So he says, you are correct. And from other narrations, we learn that the Sahaba ﷺ found this whole episode to be very strange, and this person to be very strange. So on that occasion, they even began muttering to one another that... We've never seen a person like this. He comes and he questions a messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And then he ratifies the answer. He declares him to be correct. As though he is more learned than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And in one narration, as though he is actually teaching the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the man said to him, you've spoken the truth. But the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam remained calm. 
He didn't say anything. Again, as I mentioned last week, the Prophet, we learn from other narrations that the Prophet said, I was never visited by Jibreel, except that I knew who he was, regardless of the form he adopted, except on this occasion. For I did not recognize him to be Jibreel until right at the end, until towards the end. So the Prophet didn't say anything to him. And again, this shows, I mentioned last week that it's incumbent upon a seeker of knowledge to show respect, to be respectful. But at the same time, it's also imperative for the bearer of knowledge, the carrier of knowledge, the one who is imparting the ilm and knowledge, to be forbearing, to be tolerant, to be patient and understanding as much as possible. For the Prophet ﷺ here, when the man came and placed his hands on his knees, I explained that initially he placed his hands on his own knees. And then later he placed his hands on the knees of the Prophet ﷺ, which again is an act of submission, but it is being a bit slightly forward as well in that he placed his hands on the knees of the Prophet ﷺ. Normally, the other the Sahaba anhum wouldn't do that. But what Jibreel, it appears that Jibreel was trying to obfuscate the whole matter and therefore deliberately conceal the fact that he was someone special. Of course, he was strange, but he, didn't, he wanted the Sahaba anhum to think differently and that's exactly what they did they they couldn't figure him out they thought that he was one he was an unrefined bedouin but the prophet وسلم, throughout showed forbearance and tolerance he remained patient he didn't scold the questioner he didn't say anything and indeed this was something the prophet وسلم, always did rasulullah was a perfect example of patience, of tolerance, even in the face of provocation. Bedouin would come, say things to him. They would, to some degree, become physical with him. Such as one Bedouin, when the Prophet ﷺ turned around, he grabbed his cloak from behind and yanked it. And he yanked it with such force that the Prophet ﷺ spun around. And it scorched the Prophet ﷺ the edge of the blanket or the cloak. I also relate it, but the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba were furious, but the Prophet ﷺ remained calm. I've related the story of Zayd ibn Su'unna. On numerous occasions, who was actually a Jewish rabbi, and he had learnt and read in the scriptures some of the signs of the final messenger of Allah. And one of the signs was that he is forbearing and tolerant and patient, and that provocation only increases his forbearance. 
So he wanted to test the Prophet ﷺ and he came, and it's a long story, he, he took, he gave the Prophet ﷺ a loan and requested payment. It was actually what we would call Bayr al-Salam, which is where the goods are given. Where, well, he, he gave money. And he demanded payment of the product at a later date. And there were dates. So the full story, I've related it. I, I don't wish to go into detail as we don't have time. But in, in essence, Ali radiallahu anhu relates a story that the Prophet sallallahu was approached. Well, Zayd ibn Su'unna approached the Prophet sallallahu Ali radiallahu anhu was there. Another Bedouin came seeking assistance. Prophet ﷺ had nothing to offer. So Zayd ibn Su'unna seized the opportunity and said to the Prophet ﷺ, I will give you some money on the understanding that you give me dates later. So Prophet ﷺ accepted, he gave the money. The Prophet ﷺ told Ali to give the money to that Bedouin who came to seek help, uh, not just for himself but for his people. Then Zayd ibn Su'unna approached the Messenger وسلم, at the time of collecting the dates. And he was very rude and harsh. And he actually approached the Prophet. وسلم, this was all an act. He wanted to test him. He, he grabbed the Prophet وسلم, by his collar and verbally harangued him. And Umar and the other Sahaba were furious and they were threatening to assault him. And the Prophet remained calm and patient. So, and then Zayd ibn Su'unnah he revealed to the Prophet and this was later, not immediately then, but later, that this was all a test and that indeed the Prophet ﷺ had passed the test because he was simply seeking verification of the signs found in the earlier scriptures of the final messenger. And one of the signs was that he had seen all the others but this was one of the signs which he hadn't seen that the final messenger would be tolerant, forbearing and patient and that provocation only increases his forbearance. And he saw that in the Messenger And this is an example for us to adopt, especially for those who bear knowledge, for those who teach, for those who impart, for those who are approached with questions, especially for the ulama and the talabatul ilm, the seekers of knowledge, that we need to remain very patient, very tolerant, and we need to avoid becoming indignant so that a teacher, a bearer of knowledge, feels that I must be respected, people must respect me. It's, it's incumbent upon the seeker of knowledge to see, to be respectful. But if he or she does not show respect, then the bearer of knowledge should be a bit more tolerant. 
heart and understanding and less expectant. One can't demand respect, one can't expect respect. One needs to earn that respect. And if someone isn't respectful, then it's their loss. One doesn't need to feel so angry, bitter and indignant. Throughout the history of Islam and throughout the history of ilm, ulama, people of knowledge, have always been disrespected. But their response has always been the response of the Messenger They followed in his footsteps. So whether you are giving da'wah, whether you are teaching people, whether you are imparting knowledge, you are sharing knowledge, if you face provocation, if you face insolence, rudeness, disrespect, the best response is one of tolerance, forbearance, patience. And this is especially important for the ulama, very important. We always learn about respecting ilm and respecting ulama, and it's true, we should. But at the same time, ulama and the people of ilm also need to remind themselves and remember how to behave. Just because one has a qualification, it doesn't entitle them to behave in any manner. In the famous hadith of Abu Darda radiyallahu العلماء ورثة الأنبياء that the ulama, the people of ilm are the successors to the messengers عليهم الصلاة والسلام now this is a privilege but the privilege has a commensurate responsibility one can't just take the privileges and shun the responsibility if one wants to be a successor of the Anbiya one should also and inherit their knowledge, then one should also be a successor to them in their amal, in their action, in their applying of their ilm, in their conduct and character. This is extremely important for the ulama and for the people of ilm. So here, the man whom we know retrospectively as Jibreel alayhi salam, but at the time none of them knew, the way he behaved with the Prophet sallallahu was very crude. And he questions the Prophet sallallahu and then he says to him, you are correct. You've spoken the truth. And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were offended. They were thinking, what's this? He, he acts as though he is... He behaves as though he is more knowledgeable than the Messenger sallallahu That he is actually teaching the Prophet sallallahu These aren't my words, these are actually words of the narrations. This is what they said amongst themselves. But the Prophet sallallahu didn't say anything. So the man then said, Tell me about Iman. So the Prophet said, Iman is that you believe in Allah and in his angels and in his books and in his messengers and in the final day. 
and in Qadr, and that you believe in Qadr, good and bad. And from other narrations we learn that he said, Iman is that you believe in Allah, in the angels, in the books, in the messengers, in the final day, in the resurrection, in death and resurrection after death, in Qadr, all of it, sweet and bitter, good and bad. So the man said, if I believe in all of these things, will I be a mu'min, will I be a believer? The Prophet said, yes, you will. You will be a believer. Now, what is iman? And what do we mean by the word iman? As I explained, Islam means submission. Iman means belief, to believe. That's what it means. It means to believe. So one has to believe in Allah. And that belief is not to do with the limbs and the organs of the body. something to do with the mind and the heart. It's mental belief and conviction. And... Heartly contentment, to be content with one's heart, to believe with one's heart, with one's heart and mind. Belief is vital. Now, and one's correct belief is important. In that famous verse of Surah Al-Baqarah, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about virtue and righteousness, in which he says, لَيْسَ الْبِرَّ أَن تُوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ قِبَلَ الْمَشْرِقِ وَالْمَغْرِبِ That it is not virtue that you face, that you turn your faces towards the east or the west. Rather, virtue is of that person. Now, what is this verse speaking about? The verse is addressing everyone and reminding everyone that formal ritual bodily worship isn't the be all and end all it's not the only sign of virtue and virtue is not restricted piety virtue goodness godliness Righteousness. None of these things are restricted to formal ritual worship. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that virtue is not that you turn your faces towards the east or the west. Now what is this reference? Even before Islam, some of the other communities of Arabia that lived at the time of the Prophet wasallam, that believed in Allah, that had, that had a religious tradition and a tradition of rituals and formal worship, apart from the pagan Arabs. These communities, the most famous amongst them, were the Jews and the Christians, the people of the book. And both the Jews and the Christians had formal acts of worship. 
congregational acts of worship. And maybe not to all of them, but many of them. In their formal ritual acts of worship, there was a whole routine, there were rites, there were rituals. And as part of these rituals, they would face a particular direction in order to worship individually or collectively. Just as Muslims. Muslims face the Kaaba. They have a Qibla. Other communities have their own Qibla. They would face Baytul Maqdis, Jerusalem. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse. And in there is a reminder to everyone that virtue, goodness, godliness, righteousness, piety, all of these things are not restricted and are not confined to ritual worship where you sit or you stand up and you face a particular direction to a temple, to a masjid, to a house of worship. And you think that by performing that ritualistic act of worship, you have attained virtue and piety. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that is not piety. And primarily the message is for us. That we do not think that all of Islam, all of goodness, all of godliness, all of taqwa, all of virtue and righteousness and piety is to be found only in salah. But we stand up, we face qibla and we pray our salah. There is much more to religion. And then later in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala categorically says, This isn't virtue, that you simply face the east or the west, i.e. qibla, and it could mean any direction, it's not restricted to the east or the west, any direction, i.e. That, that you face qibla, no. Rather, Allah says, virtue is of those people, or of that person, and then Allah mentions. So what does he mention? He mentions the characteristics of those people who are virtuous, who are pious. And of them, what does he say? Allah says, rather virtues of that person who, and I'm continuing from the middle of the verse, who, who despite the love of wealth, gives wealth to, rel- to the relatives, to the poor, to the orphans, to the poor and needy, to the traveller, to the beggars, and in the cause of freeing necks, i.e. liberating people, and who establishes salah, and who gives zakah, and virtues of those people who fulfill their promises when they do make a pledge. Virtues of those people who are perseverant in difficulty and hardship and even in conflict. These are the ones who are truthful. These are the ones who have taqwa, 
who are the people of taqwa. So Allah mentions that it's not just salah, it's not just ritual worship which marks a person's piety. Rather, all of these categories mark a person's piety. One has to fulfill one's duty to Allah, the Creator, as well as one's duty to the creation. Fulfilling promises, fulfilling one's pledges, being honest, truthful, having integrity, remaining perseverant. That means even in hardship, even in difficulty, one does not waver in one's commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one's, pi- in one's piety. Giving wealth, sharing wealth, establishing salah, giving zakah, voluntarily spending, all of these are acts of virtue and piety. Now, the interesting thing here is, I said I'll start from the middle of the verse. Before Allah mentions any of these acts of piety, the first condition Allah mentions of virtue is, وَلَكِنَّ الْبِرَّ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةِ وَالْكِتَابِ وَالنَّبِيِّينَ Belief. Belief. That virtue is of that person who believes in Allah and in the final day and in the angels and in the book and in the prophets. And this is why in other verses of the Qur'an, مَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحٌ مِّنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ Whoever does good, man or woman, whilst being a believer. So, inner belief is a condition, even for the external acts of virtue. So one has to ensure that one's belief is correct. One's understanding One's belief in Allah is correct. One's understanding of Allah is correct. One's belief in the messengers is correct. One's understanding of the messengers is correct. One's belief in the book of Allah and his other revelations is correct. And one's understanding of the book of Allah and the other revelations is also correct. This is vital. Belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means one has to be not just believing about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and believing in Allah, but one has to have the correct understanding of Allah azza wa of who Allah is. As much as he has revealed himself, and as much as he has revealed of himself, we have to believe in those things, in those qualities, in those names, in those attributes, in those characteristics correctly. We cannot deny any of Allah's attributes. We cannot challenge Allah in any of his attributes. We cannot attribute to Allah what he has not attributed to himself. We cannot say of Allah what he hasn't said of himself. And we can't deny or negate of and about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what he has said and established of himself. And all of this requires knowledge. Understanding one's creed, one's aqeedah, one's correct belief. This is vital. It's not just some vague belief about Allah. Rather, one has to believe in Allah correctly, understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala correctly. And that means that if Allah has claimed an attribute, a characteristic 
only for himself, solely for himself, we cannot attribute any of those qualities and characteristics and attributes to any of his creation. What's exclusive to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we should recognize as being exclusive to Allah. To, to attribute those attributes and those characteristics and qualities to any of Allah's creation, even to his prophets, alayhi would be a dereliction, dereliction of our duty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, would be a corruption of our belief, correct belief in Allah. So when the Messenger says here that Iman is that you believe in Allah, it's not just a vague belief. It should be a correct belief. In the verses such as this verse in which Allah says that virtue and piety are of that person who man amana billahi wal yawmil akhir who believes in Allah. That means believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he should be believed. The second thing that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said an tu'mina billahi wa malaikatihi that you believe in Allah and in his angels. Again, our understanding of the angels should be correct. Our belief in the angels should be correct. And our belief in the books of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of his revelations, and especially of the Quran. We may not have much information about the other revelations and books, because they have been superseded by the Holy Quran. And we have the Quran with us. Most importantly, our belief about the Qur'an should be correct. Our approach to the Qur'an should be correct. <coughs> that you believe in Allah, you believe in the angels, and in his books, and in his messengers. Correct belief about the messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is vital. <coughs> to claim prophethood, or to believe in the prophethood of someone whom Allah and his messenger have not declared to be prophets, is a corruption of that belief. To deny the prophethood of any of the messengers of Allah is a corruption of that belief. That is unacceptable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's a very clear verse about this. Allah says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْفُرُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَيُرِيدُونَ أَن يُفَرِّقُوا بَيْنَ اللَّهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَيَقُولُونَ نُؤْمِنُ بِبَعْضٍ وَنَكْفُرُ بِبَعْضٍ وَيُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَتَّخِذُوا بَيْنَ ذَلِكَ السَّبِيلًا أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ حَقَّ Those who disbelieve in Allah and in His messengers and they seek to draw a distinction between Allah and His messengers and who say نُؤْمِنُ بِبَعْضٍ وَنَكْفُرُ بِبَعْضٍ we believe in some, we deny belief in others. And they seek to adopt a middle path in between this. These are the ones who are truly unbelievers. So one cannot distinguish belief amongst the messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And primarily belief in the Holy Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that means... One has to believe correctly about all of the prophets of Allah and believe correctly about the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ himself. Again, it can't just be a vague belief that we, I accept the Prophet Muhammad to be a messenger. 
That is not sufficient. One has to accept the Prophet ﷺ as being a messenger as Allah describes him in the Qur'an. As he has described himself. One has to accept his words and probably the most famous attribute about the Prophet ﷺ is that he is the seal of the messengers. That he is the final messenger. And then there is no prophet of Allah, no messenger to come after him. His book was a final revelation. He himself was a final prophet of Allah. That is correct belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the messengers, in his revelations, in his books. Then, that you, iman is that you believe in the final day, in the day of judgment, in the resurrection. In one narration, in Jannah, and in the Naar, in Jahannam, in the fire. These are all mentioned in great detail throughout the Qur'an. And again, it can't just be a vague belief. And it can't just be intellectual, it can't just be mental, and simply logical. Belief in the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means to love Allah and to love his Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It means to have that connection, that relationship, that attachment. Not some detached, logical, mental belief, but that relationship and connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because that, that's where the heart comes in. To believe mentally is one thing, but for that iman, for that belief to settle in one's heart, so that it permeates the whole heart, it permeates one's being and character, the kind of iman that even Heraclius spoke of. We, we've covered this in the hadith of Heraclius. It's a hadith of Bukhari where Abu Sufyan was questioned by Heraclius. And one of the questions was, that do any of the followers of Muhammad abandon the faith and abstate and renounce the faith after having embraced it? So Abu Sufyan, despite not being a believer at that time, he said, no, they don't turn away from the faith of Muhammad and they do not renounce his faith. So later, this was one of ten questions that he asked him. Once he had completed the questions, Heraclius being a monarch, a highly learned and intelligent individual, and a scholar of Christian scriptures, very conversant, he then reviewed the questions and provided answers. And he, he then reviewed the questions and the answers and provided an analysis. And of this, he said to Abu Sufyan, I asked you that do any of the followers of Muhammad renounce the faith after having embraced it? And you said no. And this was Heraclius' reply. وَكَذَلِكَ أَمْرُ الْإِيمَانِ that such is the case of Iman when its delight mingles with the hearts. So Heraclius said, and such is the affair of Iman, such is the case with Iman when its delight mingles with the hearts, permeates the hearts. So even Heraclius recognized that. 
that this isn't just some a mental belief. Iman is when belief settles in the heart, permeates the heart, enters every fibre, every pore of the body, and it gives conviction such that even in the face of adversity, even in difficulty, even in hardship, even in misfortune and calamity, even under immense pressure, that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is never broken. Never. That's Iman. That relationship with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is never broken. And that's why he says in a hadith related by Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu an, related by Imam Bukhari and others, that لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى أكون أحب إليه من والده وولده والناس أجمعين that one of you cannot believe one of you cannot believe until I am more beloved to him than his parents, his children and all of the people and in another hadith Rasulullah, again related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, ثَلَاثٌ مَنْ كُنَّ فِيهُ وَجَدَ بَهِنَّ حَلَاوَةَ الْإِيمَانِ أَنْ يَكُونَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَحَبَّ إِلَيْهِ مِمَّا سِوَاهُمَا وَإِنْ يُحِبُّ الْمَرْءَ لَا يُحِبُّهُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنْ يَكْرَهَ أَنْ يَعُودَ فِي الْكُفْرِ بَعْدَ أَنْ أَنْقَذَهُ اللَّهُ مِنْ كما يكره أن يقذف في النار أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم that there are three things which if found in a person through them he shall taste the halawa the sweetness of iman one and the first one that Allah and his messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم are more beloved to him than everyone else and number two that he loves a man, he does not love him except for the sake of Allah. What does this mean? This means simply that the love of Allah is paramount. First of all, the love of Allah is paramount. And it's only because of the love of Allah that he loves a messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa And the love of Allah and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa are paramount. And that love of Allah guides his love, dictates his love, dictates his likes and dislikes, his preferences, his inclinations, his predilections, everything. And that he loves another person only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's to do with nisbat, it's to do with connection. We love things. We love the Kaaba because of its connection to Allah. We love Makkah because of its connection to Allah. And so on. And the third thing is, which you found in a person, he shall taste the sweetness of Iman, that the person dislikes. <coughs> Returning to disbelief, once Allah has delivered him from disbelief, as much as he dislikes the thought of being flung into the fire. After Allah has freed him from the fire. And after freed him from disbelief. So this is the meaning of Iman. It's not just some vague belief, nor is it just a mental belief. Some academic understanding. No. 
true Iman is what's embedded in the heart. And in, in what manner that it gives a person strength, steadfastness, conviction, inspiration. It gives them life. It helps them through calamities, misfortunes. Their relationship with Allah does not change, does not waver, regardless of the adversity, regardless of adverse circumstances, regardless of pressure. And that Iman is such that the person actually tastes the sweetness of Iman. This is what the Sahaba anhum enjoyed. That's why, why would they leave what they had found? Why would they leave it? They shunned everything. They abandoned everything. To them, it didn't mean anything. Even the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu who had wealth, they were detached from the wealth. There were many Sahaba radiyallahu anhum who were given wealth. Abdurrahman ibn Awf, Uthman ibn Affan, Amr ibn Al-As. All of these people were given immense wealth. The Muhajirun were traders. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had wealth come, but it went. Abu Bakr Siddiq was a trade. The Muhajirun were traders. Some of them Allah gave wealth, others he didn't. But many of them Allah gave wealth. But for them, it didn't mean anything. The hearts of the Sahaba were clean and pure. Wealth came and went. It surrounded them, but it didn't touch them. And they feared wealth. They feared wealth. Even those who never had it feared it. Umar ibn al-Khattab when he visited Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah he said to him show me your, take me to your house he was, he was a very dear friend of Umar ibn al-Khattab and Umar had immense respect for Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah it's almost like he they were equals in many ways and I've spoken at length about Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah because he's a Sahabi whose very little is known about him, very little is spoken of him. But Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah told him that, no, why do you insist, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, to come to my house? Because take me to your house. So eventually he took him. When he entered, and Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah was commander-in-chief of all the forces of Sham. He was the chief commander, the chief governor. So when Umar visited him at his house, he found simple dwell, a simple dwelling with meager possessions. So Umar said to him, O oh Abu Ubaidah, bring us your food. So Abu Ubaidah said, there is no food in the house. He said, bring us what you have. So he brought out to him muqassarat, which means dry nuts and pieces. And he offered them to Umar radiallahu anhu. Umar radiallahu anhu, with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, Abu Ubaidah, by Allah, the dunya has touched every single one of us except you. Of course, he was being humble. Umar radiallahu anhu was just being humble. He was very humble, extremely humble. A mighty man, but he was extremely humble. He had everything to be proud for, proud of. He was Amirul Mu'mineen. His forces 
had smashed the Sassanid Persian Empire. They now ruled huge swathes of land of Byzantine Rome. Wealth flowed into the coffers of Medina. The whole of Arabia and the world beyond paid homage to Umar ibn al-Khattab. And yet, he walked with the staff, slept on the floor, slept on the ground, walked alone, lived alone, rode a donkey if needed, rode a camel if needed, walked on foot, foot, had patches on his clothes, wept before people, humbly accepted the correction of people once he was speaking. And I was speaking about knowledge, and not just respect and humility for those who seek knowledge, but forbearance and patience on the, and humility on the part of those who impart knowledge. This was Umar ibn al-Khattab And he spoke and he said, O oh, people, do not increase the mahr, the dowry. Do not give excessive, da- excessive amounts in dowry. So a woman stood up and she said, O oh, oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, how can you say that? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that, وَآتَيْتُمْ إِحْدَاهُنَّ قِنْطَارًا فَلَا تَأْخُذُ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا That when one of you has given a hoard, قِنْطَار means a hoard, when one of you have given, has given in dowry a hoard, then do not take anything of it, meaning when you want, when you want to divorce. So Umar was corrected before a whole congregation by a woman. Umar was not the least indignant, was not the least embittered or angry, enraged. Rather, he accepted in humility. That was his relationship with the Qur'an. We love to debate. Umar was a scholar, a leader, and yet, when the Qur'an was recited before him, Umar radiallahu'an's noble habits was, he would immediately fall silent. Wouldn't, he wouldn't say a word. Never. So Umar radiallahu'an, like all the other Sahaba radiallahu'an, was extremely humble. I spoke about the humility of the Sahaba radiallahu'anhum, and yet I didn't mention any of these examples. Why? Simply because you could say so much about the humility of every single companion. So he said to Abu Ubaidah, the dunya has touched every one of us except you. And this is how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were. Wealth may have come and wealth may have gone. Wealth may have surrounded them, but their hearts were untouched by the wealth. They were untouched by the dunya. That was their level of iman. Because their jannah was in their hearts regardless of what raged around them. And that's Iman. We can only imagine, we can only dream of such Iman. We really can. This is why our Iman is so weak. Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they saw something, they experienced something, they felt something, they lived a reality. They lived such a reality that it was as though Jannah and Jahannam were before them. They were in a different world. They truly were. And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ left, all they longed for was to be with the Messenger That's all they longed for. 
in the Battle of Uhud, when the rumor spread that the Prophet ﷺ was injured, one Sahabi radiyallahu an, he was told that the Prophet ﷺ, not the rumor hadn't spread that he was injured, he was injured, but the rumor had spread that he had actually passed away. So one Sahabi radiyallahu an stood up and he said to those who were around him, he said, well, if the Messenger of Allah is no more and no longer with us, then there is no joy in life after him. So he went and he plunged himself into the foray. That's how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum For them, there was no meaning to life without Rasulullah alayhi salatu So, when we speak about Iman in all of these things, we're not just talking about a mental belief, some academic understanding. That Iman should be reflected in one's heart. And it should be embedded. It should be settled. It should govern the whole of one's character. And it should be such that one can actually taste the sweetness of Iman. And that cannot be achieved without loving Allah as he should be loved. <coughs> loving Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam as he should be loved. But secondary to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam continued that you believe in all of these things in the fire, in, in Jannah, in Jahannam, in the final day, in the resurrection. And What's true belief in the resurrection? He said you believe in the resurrection. What's true belief in the resurrection? In one narration, that you believe in death. And that you believe in the resurrection after death. Now we all understand that we will die. Everyone knows that they will die. But... Do we live, do we behave as though we are going to die? We have mental belief about resurrection. A person can't be a mu'min, a Muslim, a believer, without believing mentally at least that there is life after death, there is resurrection, there is a resurrection. But amazingly, we may have that mental belief, but do we live as though there is life after death? Or do we live as though this is the only life? As Allah quotes of the pagan Arabs who did not believe in the resurrection. The, the pagans, despite all their superstitious beliefs, it was remarkable. The pagan Arabs, the Quraysh and the other pagan Arabs in Arabia, they had immensely superstitious beliefs. They believed in omens. They believed in evil, they believed in fortune-telling, soothsaying, witch doctors, palm readers. They believed in all of these things. They believe in shamans and similar people. But, despite all these superstitious beliefs and superstitious practices, strangely, they did not believe there was life after death. So their superstition or their belief in the spiritual realm only extended as far as life extended. But after death, they said there's no life after death. 
And they used to say, and Allah quotes this in the Quran, in here, that there is there is no life but this life. We die and we live, and we will not be resurrected. So they lived accordingly. This is why the Quran places such emphasis in many different surahs of the Quran. In many different surahs. This is one of the reasons why one of the key messages in the whole of the Meccan period was about resurrection and life after death. Because the Arabs, even mentally, refused to believe in the possibility of life after death in resurrection. So it can't just be a mental belief. It has to be a belief by practice, by example, by action. So we need to ask ourselves, do I really, do I live as though there is life after death? Or do I live as though, as Allah says, there is no life except this life? We live and we die and we won't be resurrected. So that's true belief in life after death, that one prepares for that life after death. One prepares for that resurrection. And that means accountability. That's why in Surah Al-Muttafifin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَا يَظُنُّ أُولَٰئِكَ أَنَّهُمْ أَبْعُوثُونَ يَوْمِ يَقُومُ النَّاسِ لِرَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Do these people not think, do they not believe that they will be resurrected? لِيَوْمٍ عَظِيمٍ يَوْمِ يَقُومُ النَّاسِ لِرَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ that they will be resurrected on a great day, on the day when people shall stand before the Lord of the worlds. Now this is a very precise verse, because what it shows prior to these verses, Allah speaks about people being dishonest, being stinters. So what they do is that when it comes to taking, they take more. When it comes to giving, they give less. In weighing, in measuring, in scaling, in trading. So Allah says, what? Do they not think that they will be resurrected? What that verse shows is that corrupt behavior, sinful behavior, lack of morals, lack of scruples, unscrupulous behavior, all of this arises from a lack of belief in resurrection. And in accountability. If someone thinks there is no life after death. Or lives as though there is no life after death. If someone lives as though there is no resurrection. That there is no accountability. There is no standing before Allah. Then a person will be corrupt. Will be immoral. Will be indecent. Will lack scruples and ethics. Will be utterly unscrupulous and ruthless. Because there is no break on the behaviour. There is no fear. There is no sense of accountability. None whatsoever. But if someone has that true belief in the resurrection, true belief in life after death, then a person will live as though there is a life after death. Will live and behave as though there is a resurrection. Will live and behave knowing that there is accountability to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in the hadith that you believe 
in death, in life after, in the resurrection after death. And the final thing which he mentions, and I'll end with this, is He told the man who said, tell me about Iman. That Iman is that you believe in Allah and in the angels, in the books and in the messengers. And in the final day. And that you believe that you believe in Qadr. It's good and it's bad. This is a very contentious topic, Qadr. It may even be a very confusing one. It is baffling. It is confusing. It's not straightforward. It's a conundrum. And what is Qadr? Qadr is that we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already destined everything. That everything is predetermined, predestined. That there is a fate. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not just knows what will happen, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has determined what will happen. Now, Allah is a creator of destiny. Allah is a determiner of destiny. Allah is a master of the decree. Do we create our own fate? Or does Allah create fate? And it's an age-old question. And it's very confusing, it's baffling. And in fact, Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi, he relates this hadith. I mentioned that this is a first hadith of Sahih Muslim. But the, I've only actually related the latter part of the hadith. There's a story prior to the narration of the hadith. And the story is as follows. Imam Muslim relates with his chain of narration to the Tabi'i, Yahya ibn Ya'mar. Yahya ibn Ya'mar says, now this is actually the full hadith, Yahya ibn Ya'mar says that in Basra, Basra was one of the intellectual centers of early Islam. Basra and Kufa. These were the two principal cities of Iraq at that time. And they were the centers of learning, of great intellectual activity. In fact, the laws of Arabic as we know them today, meaning the form, formal formulated laws of Arabic as we know them today, were ultimately set in Basra and Kufa. And that's why you had the traditional Kufan school of Arabic, the Basran school of Arabic grammar. So in grammar, you had the Kufan school and the Basran school. These were the two main cities where 
the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were in Iraq where the, where the students learned, where hadith spread, ilm spread. Being a center of great intellectual activity, people would ask questions and there was a mixing of cultures and great learning that was taking place at that time. So one of the debates that arose was about Qadr. Since many people were bringing in other philosophies and these discussions. So Yahya ibn Ya'mar, this Tabi'i says that one of the first people to speak about Qadr in Basra was Ma'bad al-Juhani. And this created great confusion. So he said, I really wanted to speak to some of the companions anhum, relating to this. And he said, I and my companion, Humayd ibn Abdul Rahman al-Himyari, we both went to Mecca for Hajj for Umrah. So we both desired that if only we could meet one of the companions anhum, and speak to them, relating to this. So he said, lo and behold, when we arrived at the masjid, meaning al-masjid al-haram, who do we meet at the door? None other than Abdullah ibn Umar ibn al-Khattab. Ibn Umar. So we both approached him, my companion on one side, I on one side, and I knew that my companion would expect me to speak and assign the responsibility of speaking to me. So I said to Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, O Abdullah, O Abu Abdul Rahman, there are people in Basra who seek knowledge, because they were intellectually active. They seek knowledge. And they are very active. But, they say about Qadr, they say about destiny, about fate, that there is no such thing as predeterminism. There is no such thing as predestination. That's my translation. He said there is no such thing as Qadr. Rather, which means the matter is spontaneous, i.e. there is no predeterminism, there is no predestination. But everything happens randomly, haphazardly, without predeterminism, without predestination, without fate, and that everything is spontaneous. So Abdullah ibn Umar when he heard this, he said to Yahya ibn Ya'mar, he said, Go and inform them, go and inform them that I am free of them and they are free of me. We have nothing to do with each other. And by Allah, if one of them, if one of them had the equivalent of Mount Uhud in gold and then he spent it, i.e. in the way of Allah, it still would not be acceptable from him until hatta yu'mina bil qadr until he believes in qadr and then he said i heard my father umar ibn al-khattab radiyallahu an relate to me bainama nahnu inda rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that yawm that one day whilst we were seated with the messenger of allah so this is the background to the whole story abdullah ibn umar radiyallahu anhuma actually relates his whole hadith of jibril from his father umar ibn al-khattab radiyallahu an specifically in relation to qadr this is the backdrop to the story 
So when the Prophet says, That you believe in Qadr, it's good and it's bad. And in, in the other narration, you believe in Qadr, all of it. Sweet Qadr and bitter Qadr. Good and bad. That all of it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, as I said, it's a conundrum. It's extremely intricate. It's very complex. It's a mystery. And our only explanation is that this is something which is beyond our understanding. It's beyond our capacity. Traditionally, goldsmiths used to have very fine, delicate scales on which they would put gold dust on the pans of these scales. Now, if you were to take that scale and place a boulder on it, what happens? It crushes it. Our minds may be truly astounding, but we are limited in our capacity, in our ability, in our senses. We are extremely limited. Our taste suffers if it's not accompanied by the sense of smell. That's how weak we are. Our taste suffers if, we, if it's not accompanied by the sense of smell. If our sense of smell is impaired, automatically our sense of taste is impaired. That's how weak we are. When it comes to intellectual strength and ability, even monkeys can outperform us in many tasks. Even when it's to do with numbers. Dolphins and orcas, killer whales, perform better than us when it comes to simple mental tasks, some of them. So, although Allah has endowed us with an amazing mind, an amazing brain, and unbelievable intelligence, it's still extremely limited. As Allah says, do you know? We can't even understand what's in us. We have MRI scanners. We have mapped the human genome. We have explored and we know the different areas of the mind, of the, well, not the mind, the brain. We know which parts of the brain control which functions and which senses. We've gone down to the microscopic level the genetic level of DNA and RNA and the information encoded in DNA and RNA. We know so much about all of these things. We've landed a man on the moon. Now, please, once I said this and someone actually sent me a whole DVD <laughs> saying, how dare you believe in such conspiracies? Or, okay. We, we're told. It's been narrated to us. It's been narrated to us that... What uh, a It's been narrated to us that man has landed on the moon. So, we've explored the oceans, we've explored the planets, we've explored the moon. We've, we've achieved all of these things. And we pride ourselves on our technological advancements on our science, on our discoveries, on our knowledge. And despite all of this, we still don't know who we are. 
What distinguishes us from other animals? What grants us higher intelligence, higher emotion, a sense of purpose? Scientists still say that we are the only known species or living organism in the entire universe, despite its vastness, that actually sees itself, understands itself, to some degree knows itself, and is aware and conscious of itself. We are regularly told that this brain, this grey matter, is the most complex thing known to us in the entire universe. Despite all of that, we still don't know who we are in the sense that what gives us life? What makes us human? What is that spirit? Some people call it the mind. Some people call it mind as distinct from the brain. Some people call it the ego. Some people call it the superego. Some people call it the self. Some people call it the spirit. Some people call it by another name, being. Some people call it the essence. Whatever name you give it. All of these names in Arabic translate into one thing, the ruh. Despite all our knowledge and understanding, we don't know the ruh. And Allah says of that, وَيَسَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحُ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُوْتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا And they ask you about the ruh, the spirit. Say to them that the ruh is a matter of my Lord, and you have not been given except very little knowledge. So we are limited in our capacity to understand. We can't understand ourselves. What happened at the beginning of the universe? What happened at the very beginning? How did it all come, up, come about? What's a correct belief? What's a correct theory? What's a correct version and explanation? Allah says in the Quran, مَا أَشْهَدْتُهُمْ خَلْقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَا خَلْقَ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَمَا كُنْتُ مُتَّخِذَ الْمُضِلِّينَ عَضُدًا Allah says, I did not make them a witness unto the creation of the heavens and the earth, and nor a witness unto their own creation. And I am not one to take those who lead others into error as an assistant. What does that mean? We humans, who can't understand ourselves, who can't remember what we had for breakfast, who, despite knowing so much, don't know what's inside us. Who don't know what makes us us. How can we purport to know what happened at the beginning of creation? How can we purport to know what will happen later? How can we purport to understand the mystery of Qadr? It's beyond our understanding. And in fact, scientists... Some scientists, astrophysicists and others, even in science, not in a philosophical sense, but in a scientific, astrophysical sense, they speak of predeterminism and predestination, as though there is one unalterable path of time in the universe, that nothing can change it. And a perfect example of that is, imagine, retrospectively, in hindsight, we're always wiser. 
Oh, then I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. I wish this would have happened. That would have happened. But do you know what? So many different forces of the universe, even from a scientific perspective, so many different forces of the universe, so many different factors, all came together to create those unique, peculiar circumstances in which something happened. Now, even if it was possible and we were to turn back the clock and we were to go back to how things were then, most likely, the same circumstances, the same forces, the same factors would all come together to replicate the exact same circumstances, leading to the same conclusion. Truthfully, we cannot understand Qadr. We don't understand it. And therefore we believe in it. We believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's qadr without truly being able to understand it. We believe in the ruh without being able to understand it. We believe in these things without being able to fully understand them. And the truth is, it makes sense. We have very little time. We have very little time in our lives. We have a limited amount of energy, physical as well as mental and emotional. And belief in Qadr is actually liberating. It truly is. It gives a person a sense of peace, accepting how things are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا أَصَابَ مِن مُصِيبَةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مِّن قَبْلِ أَن نَبْرَأَهَا إِنَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَى اللَّهِ يَسِيرٌ لِكَيْ لَا تَأْسَوْا عَلَى مَا فَاتَكُمْ وَلَا تَفْرَحُوا بِمَا آتَاكُمْ وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ كُلَّ مُخْتَالٍ فَخُورٍ That no misfortune, no calamity befalls you. Neither on earth or in yourselves, except that it is in the book before we cause it to come to pass. Indeed, this is easy for Allah. And then Allah says in the next verse, this is why. Why are you being told this? Why should you know this? Why should you accept this? In the next verse, So that you may not regret that which has missed you. And so that you, know, you may not be exultant and arrogant over that which Allah has given you. Allah does not like every boastful, arrogant, swaggering person. In, in, in another surah, in Surah Al-Taghabun, Allah says so beautifully, مَا أَصَابَ مِنْ مُصِيبَةٍ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ يُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ يَهْدِ قَلْبَهِ Allah بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٍ Allah says, no calamity befalls you, except by the command of Allah. And whoever believes in Allah, Yahdi Qalbah, Allah will guide his heart. And my, I like to take solace when I read that verse in knowing that if I believe in the Qadr of Allah, Allah will guide my heart to solace, to comfort, to rest, to settlement, to contentment. What other choice is there? 
something's happened. How can you resist something that already is? How can you fight something that's already happened? How can you, as one individual, fight Qadr? And if you don't believe in Allah, then looking at it from a scientific perspective, how can you, as one feeble, humble individual, fight the forces of the universe? You can't. The Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you believe in it, your heart will find peace and contentment. And this is one of the conditions of Iman. When we say Iman in Qadr, it's not just a mental belief, but an active belief of the heart. In the manner that the Prophet ﷺ described to Abdullah ibn Abbas that famous long hadith, but part of the hadith is, and that no, O child, O lad, that whatever was going to meet you was never going to miss you. And whatever was going to miss you was never going to meet you. That is part of Iman. And there are many other hadith which speak of this, that a person cannot be a mu'min, a person cannot truly believe until he believes that what, is, what was going to befall him would never have missed, missed him. And what was going to miss him was never going to meet him. And as they say in English, a miss is as good as a mile. Which means that sometimes you regret, I was that close, I was that close. But do you know what? Whether it was a few millimetres away, or whether it's a mile away, it doesn't make a difference, it missed you. <laughs> so a miss is as good as a mile. Why regret? So it's not again just a mental belief, it's not again just a mental belief, but rather an active belief of contentment of the heart and conviction of the mind. That is part of Iman. So the Prophet said, That you believe in Qadr, it's good and it's bad. When he said this, the man said, Sadaqt. Again, he said, You've spoken the truth. Then the man went on to say, He then said, So tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet ﷺ told him about Ihsan, and inshallah I'll continue with the remainder of the hadith next week. Wasallallahu wasallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.